Welcome to the Krieg DeVault podcast series. As a business leader, navigating the legal landscape can be daunting. That's why we're here to provide you with the insights you need. Join us as we break down the latest news, laws, and trends shaping your industry. All right. Welcome back to the Krieg DeVault podcast. I'm your host, George Lepignotis. I am joined today by two of my uh, colleagues and friends who specialize in our construction law practice group, Chris Bloomer and Blake Holler. Chris, Blake, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having us, George. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Good afternoon. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you. You are a member of our construction law practice team, but you are also have some experience in our litigation group. Can you give us a little bit of background on your practice and uh, what you specialize in? Certainly, George. So, Again, my name is Chris Bloomer, senior associate here with the firm, and it's really one of those unique situations that I can be a core, so to speak, homeroom litigator in that uh, we see a lot of -of run-of-the-mill, if you will, breach of contract actions, other business disputes. But a big part of what I do with our construction law practice group is construction matters that does run the gamut from pre-dispute resolution, so transactional work such as contract drafting, negotiating, things like that, but then helping our clients when the unfortunate dispute arises midstream during a project. So in that realm, we'll deal with liens, we'll deal with notices of personal liability, breach of contract claims, subcontractor claims, things that uh, Blake and I will talk about here today more in depth, but that's a general overview litigation, but primarily construction litigation. Well, I'm very happy to hear that the one of the key members of our construction law group is doing construction law. So thank you for uh, confirming that. But now moving on to Blake, I, you know, I joke about it, but Blake, the construction law industry, I'll call it, or the, that area, that specialized area of construction law, I think all three of us have a lot of experience in construction law. What makes it such a unique practice? What makes it require a team approach and also, you know, that specialized team approach? Sure. Thanks for the question, George. You know, the interesting thing about construction law is there are certain areas of it which are highly statutorily dependent upon how you can go about doing certain things. But then conversely, there are a lot of other areas where it's, you know, quote unquote, Wild West, where you have, you know, some contractors that still work on handshake deals and you have other areas uh, in the construction space where you have highly specified A101, A201, very, you know, detailed, thought out, negotiated contracts. And then on the statutory side, that's what we're going to talk about here today is the is the mechanics lien side of things. And that is probably the most hyper-technical, statutorily dependent area of construction law that, that we see the most issues. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I want to get there, but let's get there. Let, let's start with, though, that you mentioned something that I found interesting, and I've always found this interesting in the construction law arena, and that is the standard AIA contracts, which for our listeners that don't know, which I think most people in the construction industry really do understand that AIA stands for American Institute of Architects, I believe. And I always find it hilarious that a bunch of architects got together and decided that the best thing they could do for the construction industry is draft a bunch of contracts. (laughs) How did that come to be? And how is it that these documents have become so standardized in the construction industry? I know that's a little off topic, but it really is. You know, the AIA documents are the basis of a lot of construction contracts um, and are, you know, and, and then also obviously permeate disputes. They've been around for quite a while, haven't they? 
Yeah, they have. And that's that's a really good, really good question. And I know Chris will be happy to jump in here because he loves working with the AIA documents. But I think to your initial question, I think the reason that they've become so prevalent is because they provide a certain level of predictability when it comes to negotiating. You have multiple different forms, and I don't know the exact total, but there are dozens of different forms for all sorts of different types of scenarios. And so a lot of times when contractors are looking to maybe work without counsel, which we would never recommend, they've got sort of a template that they can try and run with and work with on their own that will form the basis of what they're going to do. And so I think that uniformity, that predictability has, has led to the AIAs being used so often. It's unfortunate that it's architects, dra- architects drafting all of them. That's fine. But... Um, I'm hopeful they hired some lawyers to help. I'm sure they did. But they do have a lot of areas where they can use some help, where they where you need to be looking at specified areas to make sure that you're getting this right for your client. But I think overall, they provide a very good baseline for a lot of different scenarios that contractors and owners get into on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yeah. Chris, maybe you can add a little bit more color to that. I, you know, Blake said something that I find interesting that we see in our practice you guys probably see it even more than I do, but the AIA documents are not a holy grail. They can be changed. They can be negotiated upon. And that goes back to what you were talking about, that as you become a sophisticated contractor, builder, uh, even even a client, right, even a landowner or a developer or uh, a corporation looking to have a new facility constructed, the AIA documents are not carved in stone. They are simply a starting point. Absolutely. They're certainly a very great starting point, but not the end-all be-all. A lot of times when we're reviewing them on that transactional side, you know, a lot of what Blake and I do on the construction space, we preach litigation avoidance. And a big part of that is getting the contracts negotiated and understood prior to dirt even being moved. Because if everybody has a clear understanding of what their obligations are, no matter if it's the owner, the architect, the lender, the subcontractor or supplier, whomever, there's going to be a lot less chance for dispute. And if one does arise, all the parties have quantified their risk and exposure and should know things like when they need to send notices, what their risks are for attorney's fees, things of that nature. So when we're popping the hood, looking at these AIA contract documents, They provide a great template generally, and there's also an engineering set of documents as well on the engineering side, but at least as to AIA, they're generally pretty even keeled, but I think you said it great. It's not the end-all be-all. They should be evaluated for a specific, for each specific project because every project is unique and then negotiated further by the parties. And as Blake had mentioned, there are so many different, uh, practically all the delivery models for project delivery are envisioned by what the AIA has put together, which is great. So there's A-series, B-series, et cetera. There's 2007 models uh, or documents, 2017. They're frequently, the AIA is frequently pushing out updated documents, whether it's an exhibit for insurance or bonds or other matters. And so it's just a really great resource, but it should be reviewed ideally by counsel, but certainly by the parties before they get the work off and running. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do think that we see, you guys can can chime in on this, we see levels, right? I mean, we see levels of sophistication on all sides of the equation. Um, you know, going back to what we started with, why do we need a construction law group? I think if you look at the construction industry, it is ripe for legal 
entanglements, uh, so to speak, right? A, co a construction site is a very complicated place. There's a lot of, n there's a number of stakeholders and participants uh, that can create both financial and actual liability and risk. That is where the law comes into play. So hitting on it a little bit, while you both are experienced in construction disputes, that litigation avoidance factor is the bigger part of the practice, right? Yeah, it, it definitely is. Unfortunately, you know, when we see the litigation, that's the one time somebody gets burned and then they realize their mistake and then they don't make it again. And then litigation avoidance becomes a more and more common practice for these people. And so when it comes to litigation avoidance, it's like Chris touched on. It's understanding what your obligations are under the contract, understanding what the other side, whether whether you're the owner and they're the contractor, or you're the contractor and they're the owner. It's having a clear set of expectations of what you're, you're required to do, what they're required to do. And if, and usually when, something doesn't go quite to plan, how do you adjust from there? Because so many times the, the issues that we see are not at the contract drafting stage. They're not at that negotiation stage. It's not about how much the project is going to cost. It's going to happen when a trade doesn't get there on time and backs you up on your schedule and then you can't get your work done and then you're not getting paid, but you're saying it's not your fault. So you can quickly see, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different parties involved, a lot of entanglement, a lot of reliance on other parties to do their job correctly. And so in the litigation avoidance space, that's where we come in and we try to foresee where certain issues like that could come up and make sure that the parties clearly understand what's going to happen if and when those inevitable issues arise on the project. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a very good way of putting it. And using that as a great segue, because look, we try to avoid litigation. We try to avoid legal claims. They're expensive. An ounce of prevention is a whole lot cheaper than pounds of flesh. And I try to tell my clients that, and I'm sure you guys do too. I, the joke I've always said is, um, I've had clients tell me that, you know, that they want to initiate litigation or on principle. And I said, well, let's think about those principles when you get the first invoice for that litigation, you know, and I think construction law is much the same way. It, it's easy to get sideways because there are so many stakeholders and that's really where I wanted to gravitate to one of those situations is obviously when there are payment issues, right? When financial issues come into the job site and how contractors, subcontractors, material men can protect themselves and their right to get paid for the work that they've accomplished versus a property owner, developer, project owner's rights to have the work done correctly, et cetera. And I'm sure that uh, you guys have more on that, but, but really... The number one tool that we see used often, at least before litigation is initiated, is the lien, the mechanics lien or the construction lien. I don't care. You know, you guys, I'm sure you're both very familiar with it. So, Chris, how about you start? When is a construction lien appropriate and when should people start thinking about utilizing that statutory tool? I think that's a great question. And uh, the lawyer response to me would say it depends on when it's appropriate. An owner... <laughs> We touched on this, so many parties to a construction project, you know, small projects, large projects, mega projects, got so many seats at the table. And an owner would oftentimes think, well, a lien is not proper here, shouldn't be recorded for a variety of reasons. Whereas a general contractor or a subcontractor or supplier would think and have that knee-jerk reaction. Obviously, I've got to record my lien. I've got a, a statutory deadline. I have to do it. I have to preserve my rights. Even if we have a good relationship, I'm still going to preserve my rights. 
So anytime, it, it kind of depends on what seat the party has at the table. But just speaking from the construction contractor side to include suppliers, material providers, et cetera, it's really whenever that payment starts to not be made timely, they are entertaining a lien and other rights under Indiana law. Blake, can you give us a little bit of a, just a high level overview of what, first off, a lien, a construction lien, a mechanics lien, these all mean the same thing, right? But where do they arise out of? Who gives that authority? Who created the power to create the lien in the construction industry? Sure. So in Indiana, like most states, it is a creature of statute, which means the Indiana legislature created, enacted, and adopted the statute. It's been revised over the years, but it is a relatively technical set of statutory regimes where that explain fully who is able to hold a mechanics lien, what you're able to hold it for, what timing you must uh, comply with in order to assert a valid mechanics lien, and then other remedies that may be available to the parties, both the, the party filing the lien, but then potentially the party who has been leaned against. And so the Indiana statute lays out every single thing about a mechanics lien, what it's for, who can do it, and how you need to go about executing on that lien. And as I mentioned um, a little bit earlier, you know, a lot of areas of construction law can be a little bit fuzzy. They can be negotiated. They can go this way or that way. The Indiana mechanics lien statute is not that. It is hyper-technical. If you don't do it exactly right, you do not have a valid lien. And it doesn't matter if you were 99% of the way correct. If you don't do it correct, you don't have a lien. And why would you guys say that is if you've got a contractor sitting out there and he's, he's thinking about going through the lien process because of an issue, he may look at the requirements and say that's unfair, right? But there are reasons why it is so hyper-technical. Yeah, absolutely. The reason that it's hyper-technical is that you are encumbering someone's property in a legal fashion that's with the recorder's office, and it encumbers their ability to sell that property if that lien is still there. It's going to cause major problems. And so not only do you not want people creating that such drastic remedy out of nowhere, but you also want to make sure they're going to be correct when they do it. And that allows for predictability. Um, and so that's the main reason why you have such strict requirements is for predictability and to make sure that someone doesn't improperly put a lien on someone's property. And to your point about why we say it's hyper-technical and you must do it absolutely correct, the reason we say that is because there is a wealth of Indiana case law out there that show that hyper-technical violations of the statute invalidate the lien. And they can often have drastic consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Drastic financial consequences on the contractor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Chris, following up on that, could you give us an overview of real high level? And if you say hire an attorney, you're probably right. That's probably the best way to do it. But a contractor thinking about pursuing lien rights, uh, what would be the steps that would really be important to follow to ensure that the lien is done correctly? And again, I'm excluding you from the answer, hire an attorney. <laughs> well, with that um, exclusion, it's really, as Blake mentioned, hyper, hyper technical to get everything 100% accurate. And we can certainly talk about some of those nuanced details. What we like to see is getting in front of, if, if the party is looking to record a lien, getting in front of one of the biggest challenges, which is the deadline to record the lien in Indiana. And what we mean by that is 
obviously baking in some time before that deadline pursuant to the statute for which to record the lien in the county where the real property is located, but having things even behind that that need to be accomplished, such as the legal description. That's part of holding a valid lien in Indiana. And it takes time to do that. That's not something that, you know, certainly folks consult with property record cards that are publicly available. But that's not, Blake and I could share war stories at some point or another. That's not the best way to find that one piece of information. There are other ways to do that, but they take longer than a day generally. We have done it in a pinch, but it is not fun. It is not fun for the client either. So getting in front of those deadlines is probably the the number one thing to do in addition to things like looking at your contract, evaluating some of the other risks and exposure, not only from a contractual standpoint, but from a business standpoint, if a lien is going to be recorded, right? How is that going to impact your relationship with your GC? Or if you're the GC, how is that going to impact your relationship with the owner? Do we have to do it right now or can we still try to get something negotiated before making that really tremendous decision to record a lien? Well, and to give just some basic knowledge in Indiana, how many days do you have from the last day worked on a project in which to file your uh, lien claim? It will depend on other circumstances. Generally, it is 60 days for residential type work, 90 days for commercial. And we'll talk either later today or during a future podcast in terms of holding claims against property that's owned by the government. So public works claims. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we have talked about that, guys. I mean, as we start approaching our this podcast, uh, we you know, this is a great overview, but each of these sections of the lien statute could really fill a, a future podcast. And so I think our plan is to do a series that when put together would be a nice primer for people in the construction industry to get more information on construction liens and their effectiveness. And I look forward to working through those with you guys. But before we end today, I did want to touch just briefly on the difference between lien rights and the lawsuit, right? That a lien right is a creature of real property. It, is an, it has an effect on real property, but a real property is, is useless to pay your bills, right? You can't trade a bedroom for uh, some steel for the next project. So there is a second part of that, right? I mean, it's not just filing the lien doesn't guarantee payment. You've got to go beyond that, don't you? Yeah, that's correct. So what the lien does is the lien is what puts the property owner on notice that their their property has been encumbered. But like you said, just filing a lien doesn't get you paid. It doesn't pay your bills. And so the the second step of that is foreclosing on your mechanics lien. That's what the the technical term for it is. It's not foreclosing on a house like the bank would do, but it's foreclosing on the lien because that's what it's called. And so there are a couple of different scenarios, all of which we could go into on further podcasts. But the long story short is that the, the statute prescribes that once you have filed a lien, you have one year to foreclose on that, which would be to file suit for whether it's breach of contract or, or whatever the underlying nature of the claim would be for why you haven't been paid. You have one year from the date of filing suit to do that. There are some protections for owners who have been leaned against to force you to do that quicker which we can go into at another time. But in, in general, the, the part two of that is initiating an actual lawsuit to foreclose on it, assuming that you haven't been able to work out some arrangement and get the lien released before then. Well, let's do that, right? Let's call this part one, an introduction to Indiana construction law with uh, Chris and Blake. 
And then, uh, you know, maybe we'll look forward to part two, where we will talk about uh, some of the more detailed aspects of that lien process, because I do think it is probably other than litigation avoidance, which is even more important in my view, right? More important than picking up the pieces afterward is avoiding breaking the thing to begin with. But regardless, it is in fact part of the construction industry. A lot of times, even the best preparation can't foresee unforeseeable circumstances. You know, I'm I'm old enough, Blake's probably not quite there, but uh, I'm old enough to remember the mess that was 2007, 2008, the Great Recession. And you know, the unforeseen consequences that even the best prepared contractors really couldn't have possibly planned for. So I think it's a great topic and I really would like to do a couple more and maybe we'll make it a three or four part series talking about how these tools, how they are available. But before we end today, I, I jokingly said call an attorney, but I do want to touch on, this is a very nuanced area of the law. And while we talk about it casually on a podcast, to all of our listeners, if you're experiencing an issue with a construction project at any phase, proper legal representation is key. So Chris, you mentioned our website. Is there a place where they can learn more about our group and how we might be able to help? Absolutely. That's at kdlegal.com. And there's a link at the top where you can select industries, go to the construction industry. You'll see our capabilities as well as some other thought leadership some client alerts and other materials that we have already published on this these topics as well. Awesome. Well, with that, look forward to uh, doing this again with you guys and um, continuing the series. I appreciate those of you listening in to this intro and uh, look forward to part two, three, and four coming soon on uh, Indiana construction law and construction law in general. Perfect. Thank you for having us, George. Thanks, George. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Krieg DeVault podcast series, brought to you by Krieg DeVault, a leading business-focused law firm. Stay connected by subscribing to our podcast on your preferred platform, ensuring you're always in the loop for upcoming episodes. Anywhere across the nation, Krieg DeVault is your trusted law firm for providing practical legal advice that takes in the big picture without losing sight of the details. Learn more at KriegDevault.com.